Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. All right. Well, if everybody would go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, we are continuing our series into the book of Hebrews. Uh, We are in our seventh week in this series, Uh, so if you've missed any of our previous sermons so far, you can go back and listen to them either on our YouTube channel or on our podcast. So if you're watching on YouTube, uh, well, you can find the podcast link in the description below, or if you're listening to the podcast, then you can find the YouTube link in the, the show notes. But make sure you subscribe to one of them, or if you really like listening to me for some reason, you could subscribe to both of them. That way you don't miss any of our uploads. Um, now, I'm not going to do much review because you can go back and um, you can catch the whole series. But this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Uh, Now, this series is called Jesus is Greater, um, and we've been kind of doing a little mini-series within the series called Jesus is Greater Than the Angels. Uh, This morning, this is going to be the the last part of that um, kind of mini-series, Jesus is Greater Than the Angels, and so the title is Jesus is Greater Than the Angels Final, or maybe you could call it part, part six of that. But the main idea of this sermon is that Jesus is our brother, and because of that, there's some pretty significant implications there. Um, and so these verses, we can kind of break it down into three parts. Um, and that's Jesus's humanity, elevated humanity through suffering. Uh, so again, that's Jesus's humanity, elevated humanity through suffering. I'm going to pray and we'll go ahead and get right into this text. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you have preserved your word for us and revealed yourself to us through your word. This morning, as we study your word, God, I pray that you will show us how we are not like you, show us how to grow to be more like you, and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I know I said I wasn't going to do a whole lot of of review, but I do need to do a little bit of review before we get into this text. Um, Last week, we looked at chapter 2, verse 10, uh, and that reads, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So in that passage, um, we saw that God took it upon himself to pay for our forgiveness through his own suffering. And in doing so, he paved the way for humans to be reconciled to him and brought back into his glory. So that's where we pick up this week, going into verse 11. It says, For those who say... Sorry, for those... for." mm, words. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Well, before we really dig into this, we have to look at this verb, sanctifies, right? So to sanctify. Now, there's, uh, this is what I would call one of those uh, Christianese words. And so Christianese is this language that we use in the church that people in the church probably understand. They probably have at least an idea of what we're talking about, but even a lot of people in church won't have a full understanding of this word. But those outside the church really don't know what we're talking about when we use these words. And so I think sanctify really falls under that category of Christianese. Um, and so sanctify, it's a verb, and it means to make holy. All right, well, holy, that's another one of those that I don't know that people have a full understanding of. So holy, we do know, 
most people understand that this concept of holy is to be perfect and without sin. But there's another aspect of holiness or another definition of holiness, and that is to be set apart for a special purpose. And so here, this says the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Okay, well, what type of sanctification is this? Is this to be made perfect and sinless or to be set apart for a purpose? Well, we see after salvation that um, we are set apart for a special purpose. See, Jesus saves us so that we can worship and glorify God like we were created to do. One of the main ways that we do that, one of the main ways that we worship and glorify God here on earth is by living in obedience to God and giving him the glory. So the purpose that we are set aside for is the Great Commission. And that's in Matthew, um, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we are set apart for making disciples. We are sanctified and given a purpose, and that purpose is to make disciples. But also remember, holiness can mean sinless. So does this sanctification deal with that aspect of holiness as well? Well, first, we must recognize that we are not holy. We are sinful. We humans are a people so full of sin that we can't help but, to, but sin. We cannot not sin. That's all we know how to do. We are murderous, we are hateful, we are selfish, lying, adulterous, idolatrous, full of sin people. However, Jesus' sacrifice covers our sin, and therefore he makes us holy in that aspect. He makes us sinless in that aspect. Through faith in him and him alone, we are sanctified. Earlier I said that we are hateful. Well, hateful is sanctified by Jesus. Selfish, sanctified by Jesus. Lying, sanctified by Jesus. Adulterous, idolatrous, murderous, full of sin, sanctified by Jesus. We, so we are sanctified. We are made holy in both meanings of that word holy. Sinless, we are made sinless, and we are set apart for a purpose. Jesus covers our guilt and gives us a mission of making disciples. Well, then the author says that the sanctifier and the sanctified all have one father. Now, this is a pretty big statement, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has the same Father as those who he came to save. This is the same Jesus who the author has just argued is greater than the angels. Those who Jesus came to save, right, that would be us, that would be us sinful humans, uh, selfish, idolatrous, adulterous humans, those who have been sanctified by Jesus are siblings with our Savior. This also indicates unity between Jesus and the believers. See, Jesus didn't just appear to be human. It wasn't some visual trick that he played on people, and it was, it was not just an outfit that he borrowed. He became one of us. Jesus became human. Everything about humanity, with one very special exception. He was sinless. He did not give in to the temptation of sin. But his humanity is real. The pain and suffering that he felt on the cross, it is real. There was no less pain and suffering than the thousands of others who were crucified. Jesus knows what physical pain is, probably more than most of us. Jesus knows relational pain. He was betrayed by one of his best friends. Jesus knows pain. He became human so that we could have unity with him. He became human to sanctify us so that we could be adopted into God's family 
And there would be no reason for him to be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Then the author of Hebrews gives us two Old Testament quotes. The first one is from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is a beautiful psalm, um, and it opens with a, a pretty well-known statement. Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm is about suffering. David wrote this psalm about one of his most painful and darkest moments. Now, after this sermon, I encourage you to go read that psalm because it is one of the clearest prophecies about Jesus' suffering and torment and ridicule that he would experience on the cross. But then, starting in verse 19, the tone of the psalm changes. Psalm 22:19 says, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. And then it's just a few verses later, in verse 22, where the author of Hebrews quotes, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Then the rest of the psalm praises God for his faithfulness to rescue the suffering and the surety of God's eventual defeat of the enemy. So Psalm 22 is about pain and then praise and then God's faithfulness. Jesus became human so that he could suffer and die with real pain and real death. But this was not Jesus being defeated. Jesus' death on the cross was not him being defeated. This was so that he could defeat the enemy through sanctifying us and redeeming us from our slavery to sin. Our enemy defeated. Humanity is adopted into God's family. We are his sons, and we become brothers with Jesus, brothers and sisters with Jesus. Now, if we keep reading in Hebrews, the author explains this for us pretty clearly. And it might sound like he's repeating things that I've already said, but I, I kind of cheated this morning, and I, and I kind of I looked ahead and, and took some of my notes from there and put them in the, in the back so I would sound more smart than I actually am. But uh, in all seriousness, if we keep reading, it sounds like what I've already been saying. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. So it says, Jesus also shared in these. See, this points to Jesus' humanity, his temptation, and his physical suffering. Jesus shared in all that. There is no pain or temptation that we face that Jesus did not also suffer. Then it says, through death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. See, the one holding the power of death, that's the devil, that's Satan. We are bound to him by our slavery to sin. But through Jesus' actual physical death, Satan is destroyed, and Jesus, is, uh, Jesus offers life and freedom to humanity. Through Jesus' actual physical death, he gives us life. Death no longer has power over those who have called on Jesus for salvation. Death no longer has power over those who have called on Jesus for salvation. That's an important statement. I'm going to say it a third time. Death no longer has power over those who have called on Jesus for salvation. Freedom from slavery to sin and freedom from death is offered through faith in Jesus. Now, there's one more sentence here that I have to hit. I cannot ignore it. It says, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Now, there are two points in this sentence that I, I have to hit. Um, and so what I'm going to do, um, I'm going to start with the one that's more widely discussed, um, Abraham's offspring. And so this book is written to Jewish Christians, but I don't think this reference to Abraham's offspring is referring to Jews. It's referring to Christians. 
And throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, it becomes evident that Abraham's offspring refers to those who place their faith in Jesus as their Savior. Abraham is their spiritual ancestor, not physical ancestor. We read in Romans 11 that Paul compares Israel's rejection of the Messiah as branches being broken off of the bush. And then there are wild branches being grafted in to cultivate or branched in, uh, grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Now, this is symbolic of the Israelites rejecting the Messiah, thus removing themselves from the descendants of Abraham, and then Gentiles being grafted back in, or Gentiles being adopted into the family of God um, through faith in the Messiah. But if you keep reading in Romans 11, there is still the opportunity for those broken off branches to be grafted back in, but that requires faith in the Messiah. So Abraham's descendants are those who are his spiritual descendants, those who have faith in the Messiah. You might say, well, how does, how does Abraham have faith in Jesus if, if Jesus came after Abraham? Well, Abraham had faith in the coming Messiah. Just because he didn't know the name of Jesus, he had faith that God would save through a coming Messiah. He was saved in the same way that we are saved. He looked forward to the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah in faith for salvation. But what about this part about angels? And the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, who is greater than the angels, left heaven, he became human, suffered and died to sanctify humanity, thus reconciling our relationship with God and bringing us back into God's glory, and therefore elevating believers to a status above the angels. Verse 10 starts by saying, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, but there's no offer to bring the angels to glory. The angels, they're powerful beings, but in terms of status, humanity is elevated above the angels because Jesus became human to save humanity from our sins. Well, don't believe me? But look back at this other quote from the, this other Old Testament quote back in verse 13. Now, this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Now, this actually, it kind of looks like two different quotes because of the way that the author broke it up, um, but it's, it's one quote coming from two verses. Um, now, I think this reference in Isaiah chapter 8, is a very neat illustration for the author to choose because Isaiah chapter 8 starts with a warning about the upcoming exile. God warns the Israelites about the coming Assyrian exile. God was warning the Israelites time and time again to turn from their sinful ways or face discipline. But then in verse 11, there's a shift in the tone. Instead of warning, the chapter ends with a testimony that Isaiah will trust in God only. And then in verses 17 and 18, It says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. Then Isaiah goes on to further warn the Israelites of the dangers of ignoring ignoring God's warning. In Hebrews, the author quotes that and says, I will trust in him. Here I am with the children that God gave me. The author is using Isaiah's faithfulness as a model for for Christ. Though Isaiah was talking about physical suffering, the author of Hebrews refocuses this verse unto Jesus uh, and those who have been saved by him. You see, the author of Hebrews was reading, uh, was relating the period of the exile with being lost. However, those who trust in Jesus have listened to the warning, and through faith in Jesus, we've turned from our damnation, been freed from our slavery to sin, and have been reconciled to God. Believers have not only been reconciled to God, they have been adopted as children, as his children, and brought into the loving family with a perfect father. Brothers and sisters with Christ, we have siblinghood with him. 
And yes, siblinghood is a real word. I actually had to look it up for this sermon because I kept wanting to say siblinghood, but I was like, I don't think that's a real word. But it just came, kept coming up because it's the perfect word to describe our relationship with Jesus. Well, other than uh, sanctifier, sanctified, savior, and saved, but siblinghood. We have siblinghood with Jesus. Now, the benefits and impacts of that siblinghood, they don't stop there. If we just keep reading, picking up in verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He talks about a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest would intercede for God's people by offering sacrifices most prominently on the day of atonement. Now, this idea is going to be fleshed out more in later chapters, uh, but Jesus, because he is both God and man, he is more qualified to be the high priest than any other priest or high priest um, from Israel's history. And since Jesus is God, he is holy, and no other high priest could make that claim. The other priests had to go through ritual washings and ceremonies to try to cover for their guilt, but Jesus has no guilt. And so he is able to make atonement for the sins of the people. See, every year on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites would deal with their sin through blood rituals and sending a goat into the, into the wilderness to carry their sin guilt out of the city. The high priest, he orchestrated all of this and carried a huge role in the ceremony, but everybody knew that the high priest was just as guilty as everybody else. He was, he was up there orchestrating it all, but he was just as sinful. But Jesus redefines the role of the high priest and becomes the sacrifice to atone for our sins. Instead of a sinful, a sinful man sacrificing a lamb, we have the Son of God, who is the lamb, sacrificing himself for us. And it says, since he himself has uh, suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are tempted. See, Jesus' sacrifice, uh, Jesus didn't sacrifice some animal as a ceremonial offering. He became the sacrifice. He was tempted because he was human, but he overcame that temptation. But since he was tempted... He knows what it's like to be tempted. We have a Savior who can empathize with us. He knows what it's like. But instead of just empathizing with us and saying, I know how that feels, I know how hard that hurts, he offers himself as the solution. So what about our application? What type of application do we get from this passage? Now, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple and our three indicators of a disciple. So our three indicators are knowing, being, and doing. And our three application points are always knowing, being, and doing. And so our no application is to know that Jesus' incarnation has huge implications. The fact that Jesus came to his creation is huge. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as atonement for sins sets Christianity apart, for all other, uh, apart from all other world religions. Christianity is not about what you can do to fix your problem. It's not about trying to earn your seat in the heavens or trying to earn God's favor. Instead, it's about a God who loves us enough to earn our salvation for us. This means that God had to become one of us, to suffer for us as one of us, to bring us back to him. Through faith in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family and we become siblings with Jesus. Our second application point is to be atoned for. Verse 17 said that Jesus became human to make atonement for the sins of the people. See, atonement, this is a legal term, and that is, it's an act of paying to right a wrong. See, the wrong that we've done is sin against a holy God, and the payment for that wrong is death. 
But Jesus came to pay that penalty for you. He became human. He suffered. He faced temptation. He was sacrificed on the cross as reparation for your wrongdoings. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected on the third day, proving his power, proving his deity, and defeating the power of death. So place your faith in him for salvation. Call out to him in prayer and place your faith in him and be adopted into God's family. And our final application point is to live with purpose. This message started off by talking about sanctification, to be made holy. And one of those definitions of holiness is to be set apart for a purpose. So in being sanctified, we have been given a purpose. Jesus calls us to make disciples. So believer, I ask you, what are you doing in your life to make disciples of those around you? How are you sharing God's love with those who don't know him yet? Or how are you helping others to grow closer to God? Because we recognize that making disciples, it's not just about new converts. It's also about helping others to grow in their relationship. So believer, what are you doing to introduce Jesus to others? And what are you doing for those who already know Jesus to help them grow closer to him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you again for your word. God, I pray this morning that this message touches our hearts, that you show us how we can grow to be more like you. Help us to recognize that we have a purpose for our lives. You have sanctified us. You have made us holy, and you have given us a purpose. God, anybody listening who does not know you, I pray that you will touch their heart, that you will show your truth to them, that you will show your love to them, that you will bring them to a point of salvation. And God, for those of us who already know you, I pray that you will clarify our mission in, in our lives. Clarify your mission in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.